All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Valley Creek Church. Hey, I am really glad that you're here with us. We want to welcome all of our campuses, whether you're in Denton, Flower Mound, Louisville, the venue. Maybe you're watching online somewhere in the world. We are so glad that you are here. It's great to be one church that meets in multiple locations. Merry Christmas. It is Christmas week, and I believe we are going to have amazing Christmas services. I sure hope that you'll bring somebody to be here with you next week because God's going to do something special. It's Christmas season. But what we're going to do today is we're going to wrap up our seven series. You see, for the past seven weeks, we've been talking about seven marker stone messages from the past seven years. And really, this has been one of the most significant series that we've ever done together. You see, this fall marked seven years for me to be able to serve as the lead pastor here at Valley Creek Church. It was seven years ago that the founding pastor moved to China to be a missionary. I was able to transition into this role. And these last seven years, man, God has been so good to us. Seven is a really significant number in the Bible because it's the number of completion. It's the number of rest. For six days, God created the world. And on the seventh day, he rested and enjoyed everything he created. For six days, the Israelites were to go out and gather manna in the desert. And then on the seventh day, they were supposed to eat and enjoy what they had already gathered. For six years, God told the Israelites to plant their fields. But then on the seventh year, they were supposed to rest and enjoy the fruit of their labor. So it's a, it's a number of completion. It's a number of rest. And so we really believed that God was inviting us to just stop and enjoy all the good things he's already given us and eat, on a sense, the messages that he has already prepared for us in the past. And that took a lot of faith. We've never done anything like this before. It's incredibly innovative. I've never even heard of another church doing anything like this before. And so it took a lot of faith for us to step into that space. And so really all I want to do today is I just want to stop and say thank you. Thanks for following, even if you weren't sure where we were going. Like Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no advantage to you. Listen to me. You have no idea how much we love you. You have no idea how much of a burden we carry for you. You have no idea how much we pray for you, how much we talk about you, how much we think about you, how much we want to see you live the fullness of the abundant life that God has for you. And in the kingdom of God, when leaders lead with courage and people follow by faith, that's when we get to experience everything that God has for us. And so really, this series did a number of things for us. It allowed you to be reminded of what we're really passionate about, what we believe, some of our marker stone realities. It allowed lots of our new people to experience the vision and the values and the culture and the theology of Valley Creek. It allowed me to go visit all of our campuses and meet hundreds of amazing people that I've not had a chance to meet. And it allowed me to spend the last seven weeks focusing on leading our church into the future. You see what most of you, all you ever see of me is this 35 minutes a week. Like most of you, you think this totally encompasses my job. You're like, what do you do all week, man? It's like a 35 minute a week job, you know, like, okay, no, not so much. What you don't see is how much time it takes to prepare one of these messages. And what you really don't see is all the leadership energy that is required to create and maintain and move forward the church you enjoy. It really is two full-time jobs to prepare a message every week and then to lead thousands of people in the organization that we have is its own full-time job. I mean, we have a vision to create, a team to build, a culture to, to, in a sense, create, and then a world to change. So there is a lot of stuff happening all the time. And so it allowed me to take some time to focus on where we are going in the next seven years. And I'm telling you, the future is bright. Seven years. Seven years, 71 sermon series, 364 messages. God has been good to us. And so here's what I want to do real quick is I just want to share with you five things that as I've been sitting in the front row every week going through this seven series, I want to share with you just some things that I've learned over these last seven weeks. Then I want to show you our last message from the seven series, a portion of it, and then we're going to close it together. So is that okay? It's a little bit different. Can you just journey with me? Five things that I've noticed as we've been sitting here are things that we've learned. First thing is just this. We leverage technology to present the gospel. 
We use technology and technology allows us to be one church that meets in multiple locations, multiple cities, multiple services, and it allows us to do it in an excellent and sustainable way. Technology allows us to really be who we fully are in multiple cities and around the world with the online availabilities that we have. Listen, the world uses technology to spread darkness. We use technology to spread light. And what you have to acknowledge and understand is that technology is a part of every area of your life. Your cell phones, your TV, your car. I mean, everything in your life is defined by technology. And so if the church of Jesus doesn't continue to innovate and adapt and stay current with technology, we're not going to reach the next generation. And so even if technology is not your personal preference, it is an opportunity for us to share the love of Jesus with people who don't yet know him. And yet, technology will never replace the gathering of God's people. Hebrews 10 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It says, you got to keep getting together. Matthew 18, 20 says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. Jesus says, you gather in my name, I show up. Psalm 22, 3, God inhabits the praises of his people. When we worship, he shows up. So it doesn't matter who's communicating or the method of how it's being communicated. What matters is that God's people show up with a big faith to meet with him. And then Jesus shows up and changes everything. Technology is simply a tool we use to tell other people about Jesus. Okay. Second thing is, is that God's word is alive and active. That's what I've learned over these last seven weeks. I mean, it is amazing to me how a word of God once spoken continues to be spoken. I mean, I've been sitting here every single week and listening and everything that we've heard, it was fresh. It was relevant. It was alive. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Like, it's alive. It gets into places inside of you that nothing else can. Isaiah 55.11, God says, my word will accomplishes the purpose for which I send it. He says, hey, when my word is spoken, it's alive, it's supernatural, and it's going to do exactly what I want it to do, which in a sense you think is somewhat comical because most of the things we read out of God's word were written thousands of years ago. Think of how many letters were written to churches that don't even necessarily exist today. And yet when we hear it, it's alive and it's active for us. It's amazing how every time you hear it, you hear something different. And where you are in your life determines, in a sense, how differently you hear it. And it's amazing how you have to keep hearing the same things over and over again. So Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the more I hear the word of God spoken over my life, the more my faith begins to grow. Now, I realize some of you, when you heard we were going to do the sermon series, you were probably like, oh, I don't want a bunch of reruns, man. <laughs> we're kind of like nervously laughing. We're not sure if it's acceptable to laugh at that or not. It's okay. I get it. That's part of why I took faith to do this series. Here would be the questions that I would ask you, though, is do you ever listen to your favorite song more than once? Have you ever watched your favorite movie more than once? Do you ever go back and look at old pictures that you've taken of your children or your family? Have you ever read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Four books that basically say the same thing over and over again in different ways. Do you get the hint? We need to hear the same things over and over again because it begins to change us. You appreciate it in a different way. It's alive and it's active. Listen to me. I wrote those messages. I preached them multiple times every weekend. Everyone I heard over these last seven series, uh, seven weeks did something different in me. And I was like, oh my goodness, thank you God for showing me that in my life today where I am. So every time you think I've heard this one before, I've studied that passage, I've heard it stop and say, is it God's word? then it's supernatural, it's alive and active, and it will change me if my heart is open to it. The humble heart will receive something fresh every time God's word is spoken. The prideful heart will receive nothing when God's word is spoken. Every service, every weekend, God has something to say to you, okay? Third thing is revelation has to be stewarded or it'll be lost. Listen, as I was sitting here listening to these seven messages, I was thinking, do you understand how much revelation God's given us in seven years? He said, what is revelation? Revelation is something that was hidden that's now uncovered. It's a truth you didn't know that now you know. The revelation that God has shared with us in these last seven years, it's honestly like mind-blowing. 
And yet revelation isn't just supposed to make us feel good or fill up our head with knowledge. We're supposed to apply it to our life. Jesus tells a story about our hearts and he says, when we hear the word of God, there's really four different kinds of hearts. He talks about a farming analogy, four different types of soils. He says, there's the hard heart, the rocky heart, the thorny heart, and the good heart. And based on the condition of our heart is how we hear the word of God. And if it's hard, it lands, but gets snatched away. If it's rocky, we hear it and we walk out, we say, great message, awesome. But then we go to our life and it just withers and it dies. The thorny heart hears it, it takes root, it begins to grow, but because they have so many other distractions in their life, it never bears fruit. And then the good heart grabs it, takes a hold of it, says it's for me, applies it to their life and bears much fruit. It is so easy to take for granted all the good treasures that God gives us every single week around here and not apply it to our life. So a question I would ask you is what's one thing from just these seven weeks that you need to apply to your life? Not say I've heard it, I've been there, I know it. No, no, apply to your life. I mean, you understand the word of God is, it's like a life raft. Can you imagine if someone was drowning and you were there and you saw them and you threw them this life raft and the life raft ran in right next to them and they're drowning and they're like, thanks for throwing me the life raft. Great throw, but they don't grab it. You'd be like, bro, you gotta grab the life raft. No, it was a good throw, thank you. You know, So is with God's word. He throws it right to you, but you have to have the faith to reach out and grab it. And he will save you from the places that you're drowning. It has to be stewarded or you'll lose it. I bet you there was messages you heard in the seven series that you thought, oh man, I remember hearing that the first time. That was really good for my life. But here I am four years later and I didn't do anything with it. And that's why you've lost it. Now he gave it back to you. So what are you gonna do with it? Let's be people that apply it. Are you with me on that? Fourth thing is simply this. Spiritual growth is a process. We grow over time. There is no shortcut to maturity. And the truth is, is it's really hard to see your own personal growth. Like my kids, my, my parents were just in town and every time they come, my parents will look at my kids and they'll say, oh my goodness, you've grown so much. And my kids, they're like, really, really grandma? Because I feel the same. I think I'm, I'm still the same kid, you know? You can't see their own growth. Same is true with us. Do you understand? Seven years ago, we were one campus that had three services. Today, we are four campuses that have 10 services every weekend. We're like a completely different church. Do you understand how much you have grown? How much your thoughts and your attitudes and your perspectives and your actions have changed? You're like a completely different person. Psalm 92, 13 says, those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish. It's a promise. He says, hey, if you'll just get rooted, if you'll make a commitment, if you'll say, this is my family, I'm in. And I come when it's raining, when it's shining, when I don't want to be here, when I do want to be here. If I just get rooted in, God promises that I will flourish, even though I don't see how my own growth is happening. Or you look at the first century church, Acts 2, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. They were devoted. They said, we're in on this deal. We're not sure how we're going to grow, but we're here. And all of a sudden, the supernatural growth began to take place and everything changed. You see, you need a history with God and with a people. You need a history with God and a people. And you say, what's a history? It's his story written in your life and in your tribe. As I sat on the front row and watched those sermon series come up, every one of them, I could sit there and say, I, I remember. I remember where I was. I remember where my friends were. I remember where we were as a church. I remember what God was doing. I remember this miracle. I remember that sign. I remember that valley that we walked through. And all of a sudden that history, his story in my life and with our tribe, it built my faith to move forward into this next season. But if you go from church to church and you only come when you feel like it or when it's convenient, you never get rooted, you never get a story and you never really see that growth that God wants for you. And if you say, well, I'm new, awesome. Jump in, start today, say this is it, and you'll start building his story in your life and with this tribe the next seven years. And then the last thing is just simply this. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the world. I was sitting here and thinking about all this amazing truth that God has given us, and I was reminded that it doesn't belong to us. He's given it to change us, and he's now expecting us to go and use it to change them. It set us free and now he wants us to use it to set them free. We can't just hold on to it and keep it to ourselves. We have a responsibility to share it with the world. We are on mission with Jesus. 
And so I want to wrap up this whole seven series by going to back to a message we did a few years ago from a series called It's a Party. And we said the kingdom of heaven is like a party and we get to throw this amazing party for the broken people of this world because we're living in a party with the realities of the kingdom of God and what he has done for us. So one more time, will you open your mind? Will you open your heart? And will you listen to this last message because I feel like this really is the conclusion for us of where we've been that sets us up for where we're going. Here we go. chapter 10, starting in verse 46. Let's read it and we'll talk about it. It says, then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This passage captures everything about the spirit of invitation that we've been talking about. And it's a super simple story that I think really looks like the reality of the world and our engagement with it. It says Jesus and his disciples were walking down the road. A large crowd gathered because wherever Jesus goes, there's a party. So a party is walking down the road and there's a blind man on the side of the road. He's sitting on the sideline of life. He is no longer defined by his potential. He's defined by his problem. He is known as blind Bartimaeus. His brokenness has become his identity. And he's literally sitting on the side of the road watching life pass him by. Or maybe a better way of saying it, he's listening to life pass him by. He's defined by his brokenness, not his potential. And I think the reality is, is all the people in this world, they are sitting on the sideline of life and they're watching it pass them by. They're not defined by their potential, they're defined by their problem, their shame, their brokenness, their past, their issues, their problems, and they're sitting there and life is passing them by. And as the man realizes it's Jesus, he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He, he goes into this desperate pitch and he starts screaming out because he is desperate for hope. He's desperate for life. He's desperate for love. And we live in a world where people are desperate. They're desperate for hope. They're desperate for life. They're desperate for love. So they'll do crazy things. And it's amazing how easy it is when we're on the road to judge people who are doing crazy things on the side of the road. It's really easy when we're walking with Jesus on the road of life to see people on the sidelines doing crazy things and be like, man, why are you acting like that? Why are you choosing that lifestyle? Why are you behaving like that? They're desperate. They're desperate for hope and for life. So they'll do crazy things because of their desperation. And the crazy part is, is this guy is desperate and he's crying out and it says many rebuked him. They told him to be quiet. And these aren't just random people. These are the disciples telling this guy to be quiet. Listen to me. The world is a mean place. The world will tell you to be quiet. The world wants to rebuke you. Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue can build things up or it can tear things down. And the world uses its tongue to tear things down, to define people by their shame and condemn them and their brokenness and so on and so forth. And the paradox is, is the very people we rebuke are the ones that Jesus is calling. They're rebuking the very person that Jesus came to save. And so in verse 49, I think, verse 49, it says, Jesus stopped and said, call him. Now catch this. Jesus stops and looks at the disciples and says, you call him. Jesus didn't walk over to the blind man. He looked at the disciples and said, you go and get him, call him, invite him, and bring him to me. Jesus didn't see the man as an interruption. He saw him as his purpose. And he didn't give a, a vague generalization here. He said, you go get him, that one, Bartimaeus, the man who is blind. Go get him. 
And so the disciples walk over to the side of the road and they get him and they say, man, cheer up. He's calling you. Get on your feet. Come. And it says Bartimaeus throws his cloak aside. He throws his beggar's cloak aside. His beggar's cloak would have represented his identity, his security, and his shame. It was his identity because he had to have a beggar's cloak so he could get money because he couldn't see. He would hold it out and people would put it in, which was his security. It made him feel safe, but it also represented his shame because he was defined by his brokenness. So he throws it aside, which means when you and I call people on the sidelines of life onto the road with Jesus, they throw aside their old identity, their old shame, and their own security to come and find Jesus. And so he gets to Jesus and Jesus says, what is it that you want me to do for you? He says, I want to see. And Jesus says, go. Your faith has healed you. Open your eyes. And the man sees. And here's what it says. Immediately, he started following Jesus on the road. Because people don't belong on the sidelines of life. They belong on the road with Jesus. That is the reality of what we do as followers of Jesus. People do not belong on the sidelines of life. Every broken person in this world is made in his image and likeness, has redemptive potential, and is his lost child. And he says to us, you go call that one specific, him, Bartimaeus, call him unto me. And when we do that, like this story is the spirit of invitation. This, this the whole, you want to say, what is the spirit of invitation? This story is it. We walk on the road with Jesus in community with other disciples. He stops and points out people, says that one right there, go and get him for me. And we have the courage and we walk over and we invite them and they get off of the sidelines and onto the road of life and everything about them changes and they get set free. That's the spirit of invitation. Okay. It's okay. We can, we, I know this, listen. <laughs> There's a burden today. There's a burden today in our church for people on the sideline of life. That's what you're feeling today. There's a burden for the reality that people are blind in all kinds of different ways. And they're, they belong on the road. And so when Bartimaeus got invited onto the road and he met Jesus, you know what, you know what happened? All of heaven rejoiced. Because when one person meets Jesus, all of heaven rejoices, all the angels like go crazy in the party. I don't know about you, but I want to keep the angels partying. That's that's what I'm trying to say. Okay. So a couple thoughts for you, and then we're going to do something together. First thing is this. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's not just about you and Jesus. I realize that feels shocking when I say that to you. It feels shocking coming out of my mouth, but it is not just about you and Jesus. The biggest problem we have in American Christianity is we think it's just me and Jesus. Rugged individualism, Lone Star State, we make it happen, baby. We, come on, this is Texas. We don't need no one or nothing. And we believe that. As long as I got Jesus, I'm good. I don't need the church. I don't need gatherings. I don't need people. I don't need belongings. I don't need small groups. I don't need no, I got me and Jesus, we're good. And yes, there's an element of truth to that. Like, yes, uh, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus and should. And yes, every day you can spend time alone with just him and, and you should. And yes, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And yes, you can hear his voice speak directly to you. And yes, you have access to boldly approach the throne of grace and walk right into the throne room and talk to God. And, and yes, he, he, will, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And that it's, your, it's your faith that brings personal salvation. All of that stuff is true, but it's not just you and Jesus. In fact, what Jesus would say to you is he would say, if you're going to follow me, you're going to walk with them and you're going to reach them. If you're going to follow me, you're going to walk with them, other followers who are on the road with me, and you're going to reach them, those who are sitting on the sidelines of life. Your faith is personal, but it is not private. No one follows Jesus alone. I mean, Jesus would say, if you're going to follow me, you're going to walk with them like Like when you become a follower of Jesus, you get grafted into the family of God. You become part of the body of Christ. He's leading us towards unity. Like there's a reason when you read the gospels that it's always Jesus and the disciples, plural. The the, the, the gospels are not the story of Jesus and Peter, the adventures of Jesus and Peter. You know, it's not the epic tale of Jesus and John. No, It is the story of 12 men in community walking on the road with Jesus reaching the world. No one follows Jesus alone. 
When you get saved, you become part of the kingdom of God. That's the first circle you live in. And then you're supposed to be planted in one life-giving, healthy, local church. That's where you'll flourish. And then you need godly relationships in your life. Other disciples that are helping you follow Jesus. So he'll say to you, if you're going to follow me, you're going to walk with them. Look at these beautiful, wonderful people around you. Look at them. Go ahead. It's okay. Look at them. They're not scary. You will walk with them, he says, and you'll reach them. He says, I'm going to use you to invite the people I love. Matthew 4.19, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Right from the very moment that they started following Jesus, they understood that they would reach the world. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Like, you're going to actually go to them and, and reach them and bring them off the sidelines. Or Acts 1, 8, you'll be my witnesses. You're going to go and tell other people about me. And when you follow Jesus, what starts to happen is you start to care about what he cares about, have compassion on what he has compassion on, and love what he loves. And Jesus cares about, has compassion for, and loves people. People. I mean, catch this thing. Here's this group. It's Jesus and disciples and then a bigger ring of crowd. And they're walking with Jesus. And they're so concerned about themselves and Jesus that they miss Bartimaeus on the side of the road. The disciples are so concerned with me and Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. They must have been from Texas. It is me and Jesus. That's it, man. I got to be at the front of the front of the pack. I got to be up here by Jesus rubbing shoulders. I'm taking notes like crazy. Everything he says, I got to be positioned to see the next miracle. They're so focused on me and Jesus. They miss Bartimaeus. We get so focused on me and Jesus that we miss the people on the side of the road that he's asking us to call. We get so focused on our daily devotions, my quiet time with God. What's his will for my life? Are my prayer requests going to get answered? I got to deal with my brokenness and my issues. We get so focused on me and Jesus, but it's not just about you and Jesus. I mean, John 4, 35, Jesus says, I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. He says, there are people sitting on the sidelines everywhere you go. <laughs> and what I think is funny is that the disciples, they saw Bartimaeus as an interruption from their work of changing the world. Jesus, have mercy on me. Shh, quiet, man. Can't you see we're busy? We're changing the world. We're setting people free. Stop bothering us. <laughs> Wait, what? He was an interruption to them. Listen to me. People are not an interruption to your work. They are your work. You are not a financer. You are not a salesman. You are not in education. You are not a student. You are not in the healthcare profession. You are in the business of redeeming people. That's, that's your role. It's not an interruption. It's not an interruption. That's your work. Matthew 16, 19. Jesus says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Okay? We've talked a lot about this, that we as the church have keys to unlock heaven and bring it to earth. And, and I won't go into that, but keys are also given to a gatekeeper. A gatekeeper has keys, and he is the one who has access to decide who gets in to see the king and who gets shut out. So we have keys, and we get to decide who gets in to see the king and who gets shut out. Who are you opening the door for and bringing them off the sidelines onto the road of life to come and see the king that they might be free? It's not just you and Jesus. It's you, Jesus, us, and them. That, that's what it is. And if you think it's just you and Jesus, you're not really following Jesus because Jesus is always leading you to people. That's strong. It's weighty. But it's true. Okay? So it's okay. There's a burden today, so just let's go with the burden. Okay? It's not just about you and Jesus. Second thing is this. There are specific people that he has called for you to reach. Specific people that Jesus wants you to invite. Verse 49, he stops. He looks at the disciples. You call him. You call him. That one. Blind Bartimaeus. That one. It wasn't this big generality. It wasn't vagueness. This wasn't a moment when Jesus stopped and preached some awesome vision about changing the world. Jesus wasn't saying, you're going to be salt and light. He didn't even say, go make disciples of all nations. He said, no, that one. That guy right there. His name is Bartimaeus. Call him to me. There are specific people with specific names and stories that he's asking you to invite. Invite that person to hub. Invite that person to your group. 
Invite that person to a serving team. Invite that person to church. Invite that person into your home. Invite that person into your life. Specific people. See, I think we sometimes as the church, we're really good at general invitations. We got to be good at specific invitations. General invitations inform people. Specific invitations move people. So when you go on Facebook and you say, I love Jesus. My church is awesome. You should come. That's really good. It's really important, but it's a general invitation. And what it just did is it informed a load of people about reality. But a specific invitation says, hey, Bill, will you come to church with me next weekend at the 930 service? I'll meet you at the front door and we can sit together. Will you come with me? That moves people. That doesn't inform them. It moves them because it forces them to make a decision. There are people that Jesus is saying, that one, call that one. See, you have access to people that none of us else do. There's people in your life you have access to that we, no one else in this room, actually has access to. So God has positioned and prepared you to reach people no one else can. Like, listen to this. John 1, 40 and 42. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So picture this. Andrew meets Jesus first. And it says the first thing Andrew does is he goes and he gets Peter because he has unique access to Peter's life that no one else has. And he says, Peter, we have found the Christ. Come with me. Get off the sideline onto the road and come and meet Jesus. When you have been found by Jesus, your response is always to find others. Okay? Are you with me? Let me draw for a minute. Okay? I'm not a very good artist. So track with me. This is you right here. And you're happy because it's a party. And we have hair because we still want to. Okay. <laughs> there are people in your life, these people, that no one else has access to. You have a unique favor. You have a unique opportunity. You have a unique relationship. These people, no one else around here has access to them but you. And when you have the courage to invite this one person who God is calling you that none of us else know so we can't invite them, you invite them. They have access to people in their life that no one else knows. And when they invite this person to come and meet Jesus, they have access to people that no one else knows. And when they invite somebody to come to meet Jesus, they have access to people that no one else does. And when they do it, they have access to people that no one else does. And that's how we change the world. That's how we change the world. One simple invitation at a time into groupings of people that no one else has access to. Like, did you ever wonder sometimes, did you ever like think about somebody and think, man, there's no way they'll ever meet Jesus? Like... Look at, look at this person. They're not happy because they are not at the party. So they do not have hair. <laughs> and we look at this and we think, man, this is an athlete, a celebrity, a politician, crazy stuff, an ISIS fighter. And we look at this person and we think, man, they're never, I can't reach that person for Jesus. We can't really change the world. Okay, yeah, you probably can't reach that person, but what if you just invited this person? that you have unique access to, and they invite one person they have access to, and that person invites someone they have unique access to, and that person has unique access into this person's life, and they invite them to come meet Jesus. And now they're changed, and they're happy because they got invited to the party because you invited one person that no one else had access to. That's how we change the world. I mean, think of this. Jesus meets Andrew. Andrew invites Peter. Peter invites somebody he had access to. That person invited someone he had access to. They invited someone they had access to. And that person invited you. That's how you got into the kingdom of God, just so you know. It wasn't because you drove by and saw Red Robin and thought, let's check out the church with a pond. <laughs> or in Denton, you weren't hanging out at Hobby Lobby and thought, let's walk next door because it's Sunday. It's closed at Hobby Lobby. Let's try that thing. No, no. That's not how it happened. That's how it happens. Does that make sense to you? You see, we have all these lists in our lives. You have grocery lists, to-do lists, wish lists, uh, bucket lists. The most important list in your life is your guest list. It's the few people that are on your guest list to come and meet Jesus. 
God has two lists. He has a list of everybody he's invited, which is everyone in the world, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. On the invitation list is everybody of all time, all of humanity. And then there's the list of those who have accepted his invitation. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're on that list. Matthew 10 or Luke 10, 20, Jesus says, do not rejoice that the demons submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Two lists. And what he does is when you're on this list, he breaks up the remaining names on this list and he gives a few of them to you and a few of them to me and a few of them to the person sitting next to you. And he says, you go call that one to me. And you say, well, how do I know what those few names are? Have you asked him? Like who has he, who has God highlighted in your life? Like just, you know how like there's just that person, they're just like highlighted. Maybe you see them everywhere you go or you think about, I mean, just highlighted. Or maybe it's somebody you have compassion towards. Or maybe it's somebody that you have unique favor, like no one else has access into their life like you do. Or an opportunity in, in, in a scenario. Or no one else has invited them. Or you just hear a whisper, that one right there. What that means is the Holy Spirit's been working in their heart like Bartimaeus on the side of the road. And God's saying, okay, now's the time, invite them. And I know what you're thinking. You say, yeah, but what if they say no? Okay. If they say no, then you valued them. You planted a seed in their heart and they didn't reject you. They rejected Jesus. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when people insult you. Let's say that again. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. There are rewards in heaven that many of us will never get because we were too afraid to invite somebody because they might say no. When they say no, Jesus says you get a reward in heaven. I think that's worth the risk, don't you? We don't change the world by sitting in church saying we're going to change the world. We change the world by inviting specific individuals he's put right in front of us. Okay? You with me on that? Yes. Last thing is this. We invite and we include. Bartimaeus was invited off the sidelines onto the road, but he was also included. He became part of the group. He was accepted and wanted and loved and belonged with the other disciples. We can do a really good job of inviting people, but if we don't include them, they will always fall away. Like, have you ever been invited to a party, and when you got to the party, you weren't included? You know what I'm talking about? Come on, right? Like, you got invited, and you show up at the party, you're a little nervous, you knock on the door, someone opens it, you walk in, you kind of look around, and everybody's in, like, little pods. And the person that invites you just gives you one of these, like, and goes back to their little pod. Okay, you extroverted people, maybe you could crack into one of those. Us introverted people, we hang out for about three minutes, and we're gone. It was already hard enough for us to walk up and knock on the door. If you don't bring us into a pod quickly, we're leaving. Okay? Introverted people can't even laugh at that because they're so, like, worked up about it in their spirit. They're like, yes, that's not even funny. It's me. It's me. My wife, she breaks in. I'm gone. See ya. That's how a lot of people feel in church. I read somewhere just this last week, if people don't make six relationships in nine to 12 months at a church, they will leave. No matter how much they love the church, they can love the worship, the kids ministry, the preaching, the vision, whole thing. If they don't make six relationships in nine to 12 months, they leave. Why? Because life is about relationships. No one wants to just attend a party. They want to belong to the party. They don't want to just be invited. They want to be included. I mean, I remember six months ago, it was a weekend, someone was preaching and I got to just hang out in the atrium and I was in the atrium and I watched as this, um, these two women walked in the, the door about 15 minutes into service and they walked in and the one lady um, just, just was looking down at the ground and the other lady was just kind of stressed out and she walked up to one of, the, uh, uh, one of the people at the information center and basically said, hey, I've just moved my friend here from another state. She has no one. She had to get out of her life back there, and she's here. She's got a job, and she doesn't do church. I don't do church, but we just figured this was a safe place for her to start meeting some people. Can she go into service? 
And so the information people out there were amazing. They brought her in and they sat her down and I was sitting there and I was standing in the back and I watched this whole thing happen and I leaned over and I looked at the person standing next to me and I said, if we don't give her community, the darkness will. Here's a 30-year-old woman running from some reality in her life. If we don't give her community, the darkness will. Because Satan is so smart that he understands that people want to belong more than anything else. And even if they can belong on the sideline of life with a bunch of other blind beggars, they will choose that over walking on the road alone sometimes. And the problem is, is our lives are full. They're full. They're at capacity. So we need to make some space because you have to give something up before you can receive something else. Jesus says the good shepherd will leave the 99 sheep to go find the one. He'll leave 99 sheep in an open pasture, which means he'll leave control, comfort, and convenience to go find one. Pick it up and bring it back. So the question is, is like when you're out in the atrium and your pot of friends, will you leave your pot of friends to go find that one person over here by themselves and bring them in? Will you be willing to leave your small group when it gets too full and start a new small group to create space so that person that needs to be included can be invited in? Will you go and invite somebody onto your serving team even though it's us four no more? We love it, man. <laughs> we can make this thing happen like nobody's business in the cafe. We don't need no one else. It's us. We love it. Okay. Are you going to create space so someone else can come in? Are you going to sit in service and look to the person that's sitting by themselves and walk over and grab them and say, you want to come sit with me and my family? My name's John. Great to meet you. We're always waiting for them to go first. Maybe we're supposed to go first. Like, think of a pickup game. Like, this maybe will translate for men, like a pickup game. If you're playing a pickup game of basketball with your buddies and you're playing, people come and they watch and they sit on the sidelines, but you... You never expect somebody that just showed up and is watching the game to like at break, like jump on the court and be like, hey guys, I'm ready, can count me in. And if they did, you'd be like, get out of here, man. Like, no, no, you look like a terrible basketball player, by the way. You know, no, no, no one does that. No one self-identifies and just jumps on the court. They sit there and they watch and they're waiting for a break for someone on the court to look over and be like, hey man, you want to come play? Because we got another spot. We would love to have you come and play with us. Come on, man. I'm John. Come join the game with us. That's when they get off the sideline and get into the game. We got to stop thinking that just because we have a building and pathway stuff, that people just do it by themselves and naturally find friends. No. And here's the reality is, is if you're in any church in America, the number one thing you'll hear if you just start talking to people is this. I just couldn't get connected. Number one. You say, where did I come up with that? I made it up, just like last week, 90%. <laughs> but it's number one. I couldn't get connected. I need to get connected. Nobody connected me. It's hard to get connected. Boy, I wish I could be connected. That's what everyone says. Okay. Maybe we need to flip our mind and stop being focused on getting connected and start becoming the connector. What if you stopped saying, I need to get connected, someone needs to connect me, and you realize that just about everyone else feels that same thing, and you became the connector. And you just decided, man, I'm just going to start connecting with people. I'm going to walk around and be like, man, everybody is waiting for someone to go first. I'll be the one with courage and just walk over and introduce myself and start a question, have a conversation, invite somebody to something. Don't be, maybe the best way to get connected is just to be a connector. So this is your thus hereby commissioning and empowerment with authority to be a connector at Valley Creek Church. And the next time you say, I can't get connected, before it comes out of your mouth, you're like, I can't get connected. You're going to stop and say, I'm going to be a connector. And I'm going to try to find one person that looks as lonely as I feel. And I'm going to go invite them to coffee, to sit in the cafe to sit with me in service, to a small group, to a serving team, whatever it is. Does that make sense to you? Okay, let me pull it together with this. Do you remember the movie Schindler's List? Told you it was heavy a little bit today, and this is a little heavy. Schindler's List, if you don't remember, it was about a man named Oskar Schindler. He was a German businessman that lived during the Holocaust. And when the war broke out, he was a savvy businessman, and he realized he could get uh, a ton of Jewish labor for almost next to nothing. 
So he started using and abusing the Jews to make all this money. And he amassed a fortune during the war, during the Holocaust era, because, man, no one, everyone hated the Jews. They wanted to kill the Jews. So he just thought, man, this is cheap labor. And he made this boatload of money. He used them to make money. And as the war went on, he started to develop this heart for the Jews. He started to see them as people on the sideline of life defined by brokenness instead of potential. And so he started to use all this money that he made to save them, to buy them, to rescue them, to bring them out of the gas chambers and out of the torture places and all these different kinds of things. He started using everything he had. He had this massive factory and he just bought as many as he could and he brought them in. And you get towards the end of the war, Germany's losing. They start trying to literally exterminate all of the Jews. And so what Oskar Schindler did is he literally made a list a list of 1,200 names, specific people with specific names and a specific story and a specific concentration camp, 1,200 names, and he put them on this list, and he wanted to buy these 1,200 people, individuals, specific people, to save them. And he risked everything he had, because if he would have been found out, he could have been killed. Uh, It cost him everything he had, but he had 1,200 names on this list, and he spent everything that he had, and he saved those 1,200 people from the gas chambers. And at the end of the movie, maybe the hardest part of watching the entire movie is at the end of the movie, he's standing there, and here's these 1,200 Jews. The war's over. They're all saved. And he's standing there, and he starts having this realization. He looks at his car sitting there, and he's thinking, why didn't I sell that car? That's 10 Jews right there. 10 Jews could have been alive if I would have sold this car. And he sees a pin on his chest, and he says, this is made of gold. This would have got me two Jews. It would at least got me one Jew like I I could have done more. And you see him go with this anguish and this turmoil inside him like, why didn't I do more faster? And I think that story is a phenomenal picture of the kingdom of God. Because all of us start this life by using other people to build things for ourselves. Like Oscar Schindler, we use people to amass a fortune in our lives. But somewhere along the way you meet Jesus, your heart changes. And no longer do you want to use them to build something for you. You start realizing you want to use everything you have to rescue them. And you start doing everything you can to get them off the sidelines onto the road of life. And you need to have a list of specific individuals that you're willing to do whatever it takes to reach. Because the reality of heaven and hell hang in the balance. No one belongs on the sideline, they belong on the road. And the greatest way we honor God is by inviting people to his party. Luke 14, 23, Jesus says, Then the master told a servant, talking about the father, Go out into the roads and the country lanes and make them come in, ready, so that my house will be full. All the father wants is a full house. The greatest way you honor the father by inviting his children home. That's it. And so the simple question that I just want to ask you is, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? The reason we ended the seven series with that message is because When you walk with God and he changes your life, you become passionate about setting other people free. When you understand it cost him everything to throw a party for you, all of a sudden it doesn't become so hard to throw a party for someone else. And if you say, okay, seven years, I've been here two. I've been here six months. I've been here the whole time. It doesn't really matter. Here's what I would say is if you've gotten anything out of the journey that we've been on together, the greatest way to apply it to your life is by saying, Jesus, I want to be a part of your mission on this earth of seeking and saving that which is lost because that's what you have done for me. We started this whole thing by the grace of Jesus and unity together and walking in freedom and all this stuff in this series, but it ends with the mission of God together. And we're positioned perfectly because it's Christmas and people are open and then it's a new year. 
and people are receptive. They want breakthrough. They want freedom. And we get to be the ones that steward it. So will you close your eyes with me for a moment? And can you just listen to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you? Can you just listen to how he wants to whisper in your heart of where you've been and what he's done and the ways he set you free and the things he's healed you of and the growth that's taken place that, that like my kids, you weren't even aware has happened. And can you realize for a moment that you were on the sidelines and he called you so you can walk on the road of life. And now he sends us together as a people to live out that mission with passion, with purpose, seeing the potential in every face we walk by. So Jesus, I thank you for seven years of faithfulness and kindness. I thank you for the completion of this past season and the excitement for the one to come. I thank you that everything you have done in these past seven years and whether we've been here for them all or we've been here for seven weeks or seven minutes, everything you have done has been to set us free and now you send us into this next season on mission with you to set the world free. Today, Jesus, we say we follow you, we walk with one another, and we will reach the world one person at a time with the same goodness and grace you have reached us with. Thank you that you threw a party for us and now we keep that party going and we invite everyone else to come to the party called the kingdom of God where there is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The only place where there is freedom. The only place where there is hope. The only place where there is life. The only place where there is love. The only place where there is freedom. The only place where you have come to set us free. We receive it, we believe it, and we thank you in Jesus' name for who you are, what you have done, and what you're continuing to do in the days to come. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.